Music and murder contains violence, oh. profanity, oh. and graphic material that may not be suitable for children oh. or people with weak stomachs. Oh. Parental advisory is definitely recommended. Music and murder, episode number five. And y'all said it wouldn't last. Look at me now. All up in the mirror holes, dancing around like I'm an 80s pop song in the middle of a chick flick. Still not making no money, but I do consider myself a little more sexy now that I'm out here casting all these pods. Get it? Podcast? Casting pods? Guess you had to be there. Tonight we discuss a case about an armed robber, turned country singer, who moved to Nashville and wasn't good enough to make it, so he decided to start robbing and killing a bunch of people. And let's be clear on this, this episode is not about me. But to those of you that thought it might have been, that's some funny ass shit. This is the case of serial killer Paul Dennis Reed Jr., the guy that moved to Nashville to become the next Garth Brooks. He also had the biggest neck out of anybody I've ever seen in my life. Hit up my IG if you don't believe me. And now, just sit back, relax, dim them lights like you're getting ready to do it with somebody extremely unattractive, and let me tell you a little non-fictional story about a man that is a true narcissistic psychopathic serial killer. This is the true story of the life, death, and murders of Nashville wannabe country singer Paul Dennis Reed Jr. From this point on in the story, I will refer to Paul Dennis Reed Jr. as simply Reed. Reed was born in Richland Hills, Texas, on November 12, 1957, which makes him a Scorpio, just saying. His actual crimes that we're going to focus on took place in 1997, when Reed was 40 years old. Although there is speculation on multiple other crimes, as there usually is when dealing with these amazing people that made our world such a better place, right? Reed's father, Paul Dennis Reed Sr., was an abusive alcoholic. And I know that surprises many of you. What? When Reed was only three years old, his parents divorced and put Reed and his two older sisters, Linda and Anne, through a lot of mental trauma. When the ashes from the custody battle settled, Reed's dad ended up with him and his sister, Linda, and Reed's mother ended up with his other sister. Now, Reed's father remained a deadbeat, alcoholic, piece of shit dad, and when he had time to work in between shifts at the local dive bar, he was a private investigator and a vehicle repo man. Why the hell his dad even fought for custody of Reed is a mystery. I can't find anything really about the character of his mother, but her name was Joni, and I'm assuming she left Reed's dad because she fell in love with Chachi. Now they started a sitcom, Joni Loves Chachi maybe? That's a joke for all of you old people. So Reed's dad was never around. So what happened? Hmm. Well, what happens to every kid in the world with parents who are addicts that put everything before their own children? Oh my god, it's, it's right on the tip of my dick. I mean, I mean tongue. 
Oh yes, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They get raised by their grandparents. And in this particular case, Reed gets raised by his paternal grandma. Now because of all of this love that Reed was receiving, he never even got to enroll into school until he was seven years old. So to all you parents out there that teach your kids how to play piano and speak three languages before they're five, tell me what you think about a kid who barely learns the alphabet and how to cut and paste when they're seven years old. Yeah, you're right. They'll probably end up turning into serial killers. I agree. Now from the age of four, Reed tortured his grandma and literally tried to kill her. He put thumbtacks into her food, specifically like her soup and things like that, and even tried to catch her on fire. Once, while she was sleeping, Reed literally caught the mattress on fire to kill his grandmother. And of course, of course there's a history of animal abuse, and in this case, it was extreme, nothing to laugh about. He actually beat his grandmother's dog to death with a fucking baseball bat. And that's just the one case that's documented. There's no way in hell that this was an isolated event. This guy likely tortured and or killed every animal that he was ever alone with. When Reed was only five, he was hit by a brick. For what? I can't find out, but maybe he hit the wrong dog with a bat or something, I don't know. But this head injury would be the first of four that would leave him with physical brain injuries or psychosis that will play a big part in his later trials. Soon after all of this, a pastor at Reed's grandmother's church talked her into getting rid of him and put him into a boy's home but Reed just went to live with his mother. I guess once you try to burn Granny alive, she ain't playing that shit anymore. A chart used by FBI profilers is the McDonald Triad, and it depicts that any child who sets fires, abuses animals, and wets their bed after the age of six is likely to be a murderer as an adult. Now I'm just paraphrasing and summarizing, it's a lot more complex than that, but that is basically it in a nutshell. I'm not sure if Reed wet the bed after the age of six, but I'd bet that he did, and I do have five on it if anybody would like to bet. At 12, Reed received a minibike from his dear old alcoholic dad, likely because his dad wanted him to kill himself so he wouldn't have to pay so much in child support. If I remember correctly, it was around 1970 when they began locking deadbeat dads up and garnishing their wages. And we all know minibikes and ATCs were a fast way to help a kid kill themselves. The plan obviously didn't work, but it did give Reed a nice sequel to his first brain injury when he pulled out in front of a car and broke the windshield with his big ass head. Now after Reed got a bit older and found himself sexually, he realized that them high school girls just weren't his thing. Now, he thought his sister would be better at being a sexual companion, so he sexually assaulted her on multiple occasions. 
And after he realized it wasn't true love with his own biological sister, he decided to trade up and began sexually assaulting his mother, or at least trying to. Yes, Paul Dennis Reed, Jr., tried to force himself on his own mother and obviously his own sister. Everything I can find says he tried to sexually assault them, but this guy was huge. His normal height and weight when he was an adult was a whopping 300 pounds, and he was six fucking three. So with that in mind, it was likely that it wasn't just an attempt. After the sexual assaults on his mother and sister, like when he decided to try to catch grandma on fire, they said enough, and they kicked his ass out of the house. He then went to live with his good old alcoholic dad. Perhaps they bonded over a couple of beers and discussed how hot his mom Joni was. And that's not the end of this cycle, oh no. After Reed moved back in with his father, he then attempted to, attempted in air quotes, to sexually assault his other sister. So yeah, he tried to sexually assault his mother and both of his biological sisters. He essentially sexually assaulted every member of his immediate family except for his dad. Because I'm pretty sure his dad was a willing participant. Oh! Oh! Now, I know this is anything they joke about, trust me. I know better than you think, but what the fuck was his father thinking? Okay, so you try to rape your mom and your sister, so come live with me and your other sister. If I had two daughters and a son, and he ever tried to rape his mom or either one of his sisters, I would have strapped him down and gave him a garden shear sex change operation and had me three nice, well-mannered daughters that were never going to sexually assault anyone. Hearing that his dad did nothing about this except for letting him move in literally made me sick to my stomach. So I cope with it with humor. And on that note, here's the song that I started off the show with. The intro song. You remember it. Had whistling and some cool shit going on. It is a song called In Hell, I'll Be In Good Company. And it is by a really badass band that you should check out called The Dead South. Miss Spells knocks me on my knees 
after I count down three rounds and hell I'll be in good company Music and murder. Who gives a fuck about your goddamn podcast, motherfucker? Nobody cares about you. I'm fucking shooting season two right now of motherfucking Tiger King, and I am gonna kill that motherfucking Carol Baskin. I don't give a fuck about you or your goddamn stupid fucking five person listening to podcast. Motherfucker, I hear just because I'm threatening your life, you're gonna quit taking my calls. Well, that's okay, motherfucker, because not only am I gonna call, but I'm gonna be coming to your motherfucking house. And you know what I'm bringing with me, motherfucker? Motherfucking tigers. And not just any tigers, motherfucker. I'm talking tigers on motherfucking methamphetamine. My motherfucking meth tigers are gonna bite your motherfucking ass in your motherfucking face and your arms, and even your motherfucking pinky toe. Now they won't eat you because they're all methed out, but they sure as fuck gonna bite you, motherfucker. My meth taggers also listen to Slayer, motherfucker. So they're gonna kill your motherfucking ass to rain in motherfucking blood, motherfucker. Then a motherfucking ghost version of you can come back and do a motherfucking music and murder episode on me killing you with methed out taggers, motherfucker. You wanna expand your audience? Well, that episode will do it. And once you're dead, me and my meth tigers are going to get that motherfucking Carol Baskin, motherfucker. Hello? You still there? Okay, just want to make sure. It's motherfucking loud in here. I'm coming for you, motherfucker. Meth tigers and motherfucking murder. That'll be my motherfucking podcast. Well, okay. I guess I'll call you next week. Bye. 
motherfucker. And motherfuck that motherfucking Carol fucking Baskin! <sighs> okay, now I'm pissed. Five people listening? Really? People don't listen to this show just because they're on lockdown and it's the only thing on Netflix. Like fucking Tiger King. And I'm not famous for just trying to kill a woman. And you want to talk about meth taggers? Okay, what comes to mind is a scrawny tiger with its ribs showing with no teeth. That doesn't scare me. And tigers don't listen to anybody anyway, much less tigers that are on meth. But I will tell you this to anybody that's listening, I will come back and do a episode of that if his meth tigers kill me. I think that would be worth coming back from the dead for. Anyway, if you would like to get your music on this show before I get eaten by meth taggers, my email is murdercast at mail.com. That is murdercast, one word, at mail.com. Or if you're on Instagram, please look up music underscore murder underscore podcast. Follow me on IG and I will follow you back. So it's a guaranteed follow. I'm also on Facebook. Music and Murder Podcast. And if you like the show, please, please, please leave good feedback. All right, enough about all that. Let's get back to talking about Paul Dennis Reed Jr. Again in this story, I'm going to refer to Paul Dennis Reed as simply... Reed. Reed was held back in school two years, even though he started when he was seven, and he decided to drop out because he wasn't very good at going to school. He later got his GED, and this is something that he was very proud of, as he should have been. I think no matter what the level, education is extremely important, and to him, this was a huge deal. He bragged about it to everyone that would listen to him. I guess he had to kind of be proud of himself because there really wasn't anyone else in his life at this time to be proud of him. By this time, he had pretty much ran off every single person that he knew and that was related to him. This type of thing makes me feel a little sorry for Reed. He was born with many things wrong with him mentally, so he already got screwed out of nature, and then he was also screwed out of nurture. This guy never had a chance at a meaningful and fulfilling life, no matter what he did. But that didn't mean that he had the right to kill a bunch of people. We all make the choice of whether or not to hurt animals and or other people. So he definitely made that choice himself, and that was neither nature nor nurture. That was simply him being who he was. Now the same year that he quit school, he robbed a supermarket. The charges were later dropped after Reed was ruled legally insane and his IQ was tested and he scored lower than 60, which is basically really, really low. To put it in perspective, an average IQ is 100 and nearly 70% of the population score between 85 and 115, about 0.1% or one out of a thousand people score less than 55 or more than 145. So 60 or below 
is kind of sort of proof of being mentally disabled. I say kind of sort of because these tests are pretty easy to fail on. You may not be able to fake being a genius, but you sure as hell can fake being mentally disabled. It's kind of like a basketball player shaving points. There's no state. I had a little cough there. He can't guarantee that they'll win, but he sure as hell can guarantee they can lose. Right after this, Reed suffered a slip and fall injury that resulted in him getting some workman's comp. Still, Reed didn't learn anything from the first time he was caught. He didn't realize that he was just horrible at being a criminal. In 1983, Reed was arrested for multiple armed robberies. Once again, he tried to blame it on his supposed mental disabilities. By this time, it didn't work out completely for him. He went through a mental evaluation, and when he went through it, he told the psychiatrist that he was also a psychiatrist as well, which I don't know any psychiatrists with a below 60 IQ, but hey, I guess as long as he held a PhD in his own mind, it wasn't hurting anybody else, right? He was ultimately deemed unfit to stand trial and diagnosed with bipolar disorder, also known as manic depression. Jimi Hendrix wrote a song about it called Manic Depression. But he eventually confessed to one of the robberies, and in 1984, Reed was sentenced to 20 years, even though he was deemed unfit to stand trial. Because like we learned in episode one, what do you not do with Texas? You don't fuck with Texas, biatch. While in prison, Reed told fellow inmates to always dress nice and cut their hair and look professional while committing violent crimes and to never, ever leave any witnesses. And he vowed that he would never leave another witness alive again, and he tried like hell to keep his word on that, but, well, we'll get into that real soon. Also while in prison, Reed assaulted hospital staff regularly and filed many complaints of mental and physical abuse. Reed also got married right before he got arrested for the robberies. But when he received his 20-year sentence, his wife decided that the married life just was not for her. It was also common knowledge that Reed did molest and rape every woman he was with, as well as molest and rape their children as well. He was just never convicted of any of these crimes for some ungodly reason. So I'm sure leaving him after he was sentenced to 20 years wasn't a really big deal. Now Reed was paroled in eight years, which means he was out and back on the streets by 1990. How the hell he got paroled in Texas with a 20 year sentence in just eight years, I have absolutely no idea. Maybe there are some times you can't fuck with Texas, I don't know. But when he was paroled, his parole consisted of one thing, and one thing only. And that one thing was, he had to send in a letter to his assigned parole officer just once a year to tell him or her where he was living and working. It didn't even have to be notarized. Just a letter from anyone from anywhere with his signature on it. Hmm. After getting out, Reed began wearing a headband that was supposedly used to block out signals from the government. 
thus keeping them from reading his mind. Because God knows what he was thinking, right? He made multiple calls and sent multiple letters to the governor and other politicians claiming that he was being followed and monitored 24-7. He even began handing out flyers to people on the streets. The flyers explained how Reed was being followed and monitored by the government and monitored by the FBI. I don't see anything about Reed being diagnosed with schizophrenia, but this is clearly something that he had severe symptoms of. But you know our good old mental health system, right? The movie The Joker will tell you all about it. If you haven't seen it, you should definitely watch that movie. That was Joaquin Phoenix's whole message behind that movie. Mental health is just as important as physical health. In fact, it's even more important. But yet, we as a nation and as a society ignore so many mentally sick people because of budget cuts and economic reasons. One of my little quotes I like to say is, if you can afford a psychiatrist, you probably don't need one. But yeah, I know there are exceptions, of course. Reed later became a truck driver, and within a couple of months he hit the poor man's powerball after wrecking his truck. This would be his fourth documented brain injury, and this would also be the one that helped Reed look better. Let me explain. For the wreck, which didn't do anything to Reed but make him a little more psychotic, Reed cashed in on two years of workman's comp and received a $25,000 settlement payment, which today would equal out to around $60,000. Yeah, money was a little different 40 years ago. You can still buy a lap dance with 20 bucks, but that's about the only thing that hasn't changed. Strippers do need a raise. Reed quickly put his 25k to good use. Like any good narcissist would do, he gave pretty much all of it to a plastic surgeon. And no, I am not bashing plastic surgery, God no. I'm bashing someone who gets $25,000 and spends it all on plastic surgery when they really don't have anything wrong with them in the first place. Please don't send me an email because you think I'm talking shit on your breast enhancement. And keep in mind, the murders he commits later are all based on his need for money because he spent it all on fucking plastic surgery. So yeah, I'm bashing it a little bit and call him a narcissist. Now Reed had multiple skin pills done, had his ears pinned back, because I guess they were big, but I saw pictures, they didn't look that big, and had his teeth straightened, which I've never seen his teeth, so I don't know about that. I know that straight teeth are very important to people, and I see that, but that would not cost $25,000. Now Reed did all of this specifically because he had some big, big plans that included being a country mega superstar. In 1994, Reed found what he thought was his true calling, and he moved to Nashville, Tennessee, just like I did. Hmm. Reed told everyone he knew that he was going to be the next Garth Brooks. He learned a couple chords on the guitar, sang his little tiny black heart out, but no matter how big and strong he was, or how much he worked out, his voice was literally shit and he just couldn't sing, period. I bet even his talking voice was horrible. I found one little clip of him singing live, and I looked for hours on everything. I, I, I guess there must be some kind of court order against his music, because everything says that he released a couple demos. And if you do have those, 
and you can get access to them, please email me at murdercast at mail.com and give me a, a link to that. I would love to hear it. But I found this one clip, this one clip that's literally five seconds, and I cut it out of one of those YouTube documentaries that I'm always telling you are full of shit, and this one was half full of shit, but I do believe that it is him singing, or rather butchering the Clint Black song, Good Run of Bad Luck. But no promises, and it's literally just five seconds long. Here it goes. And I'm sorry about making you listen to this, even though it's only five seconds. But reality quickly sets in within a month. I know, I know, you want to hear it again. Here it goes again. But reality quickly sets in within a month. Now what he was saying was that Reed lasted a month before moving back to Texas. And I mean, even I lasted a lot longer than that over there. It's a very expensive city, even if you can sing. But I mean, he does sound a lot like Garth Brooks. But let me finish. He sounds like Garth Brooks taking his last dying breath after being impaled in hell with Slayer playing in the background. And not just Slayer, old school Slayer. It's like if you heard him singing, you'd likely clap just because you'd think that he was literally mentally handicapped and you'd applaud his ability to actually try to sing at all and be like, good for him. See, you could do anything that you put your mind to. And I assume at being 6'3 and 300 pounds with a gigantic neck, it wasn't really in your best interest to tell him how bad that he sucked. So finally, after Reed accepted that he's never, ever, never, ever, ever, never going to do anything in the music business at all, but make people laugh or leave, he decided it was time to go back home to Texas, like I said. But just a couple years later, he moved his big ass neck right back to Nashville. But this time, it was so he could take some classes at the junior college and put that GED to some good use. Reed told everybody that he knew that he was going to law school just as soon as he began his junior college courses. Kind of see a pattern here? He learns three chords, so he's gonna be the next Garth Brooks. He takes nine units out of junior college, and he's suddenly gonna be a lawyer as a felon with a rap sheet consisting of multiple armed robberies. Yeah, I don't know about that. Reed did think quite a lot of himself, and boy, he was the big engine that thought he could. But in reality, he was just a liar who didn't know his limitations at all. Not even a little teeny tiny bit. He had big, huge, gigantic dreams though. Too bad they all turned into nightmares for everyone that he came in contact with. We will get to the murders right after this song from Buck Brown out of Nashville called Ain't Gonna Change. Well, he liked to drink and he liked a pretty face He was long on heart but short on money Just giving up the chase When the last bit of dust had floated away 
Well, it won't surprise nobody that he ain't gonna change. Well, she was pretty as an angel, but she was just bad news. She had all the charm of a runaway train, but she was hard to refuse. So when the last bit of dust had floated away, well, it won't surprise nobody that she ain't gonna change. They weren't headed anywhere except for trouble in the There'd be nothing left but the balls So they came back for another round Just another chance to mend And peel back the layers one by one You can't say that I was nothing You can't let me go You can't shake your head Slowly walk away You can call your mother You can call me all those names But never mind, baby Cause I ain't gonna change Stay right here tonight And I don't care if I'm staying here all along See, I don't know who is wrong I don't even care who's right But don't you worry Cause we ain't gonna change They weren't headed anywhere Except for trouble in the end There'd be nothing left but the bones So they came back for another round Just another chance to mend And peel back the layers one by one You can't say I was nothing go you can't shake your head and slowly walk away yes you can up and call your mother you can call me all those names but never mind baby cause I ain't gonna change no no never mind cause I ain't gonna change Thank you.
Again, I'm going to refer to serial killer Paul Dennis Reed as simply Reed. So Reed tried his hand at being a big country star and even changed his name to Justin Parks. Some theorize that this was because he just thought that Justin Parks was a better name for a country singer. Justin Parks is a good name, but so is Paul Reed. However, I believe that he chose the name Justin Parks because he was both fearful of the government still tracking him and reading his mind, and he also didn't want anyone to know about his past. I mean, can you imagine what TMZ would say about the next Garth Brooks having a past that included armed robbery and prison sentences? I mean, that's even worse than saying the N-word to your friend after a 73-hour bender. And by the way, just in case you didn't know this, most everything on TMZ is publicity stunts, including the incident with the country singer saying the N-word. Yes, that was released to TMZ by his own people on purpose, and the whole thing was an orchestrated publicity stunt that worked very well and probably has already made him about $50 million, plus made his name about 100 times bigger than it would have ever been had the video not been released. But that's none of my business, says Kermit the Frog while sipping on hot tea. So after Reed moves back to Nashville to go to a junior college, or as he calls it, law school, he gets employment at a Shoney's, which for all of you Californians, is kind of like an Applebee's or Chili's. After Reed gets this job, he also decides to go back to doing what he does best, which is pull out a gun and demand free money. Only this time, he will leave nobody to point at him during the trial. Or so he thinks anyway. On February 16th, 1997, Reed showed up at a Captain D's restaurant on Lebanon Road in the Donaldson neighborhood of Nashville, Tennessee. Again, for my Cali listeners, Captain D's is basically a Long John Silver's. So Reed shows up at the Nashville Captain D's right before they open up around 8.45 a.m. He knocks on the door. The manager, 25-year-old Steve Hampton, looks out the window. Reed holds up a filled-out employment application. So Steve would just assume that he was there to turn it in. And unfortunately, Reed's plan worked perfectly. And Steve Hampton opened the door and let Reed right in. There was a witness that saw the two men talking in the doorway as they were walking inside, and they saw the application in Reed's hand. Once inside, Reed pulls out a gun and forces Steve Hampton to open up the safe. After Hampton complies, Reed then forces Hampton and 16-year-old Sarah Jackson, a fellow employee, into the restaurant's main cooler in the back. Reed then makes the two lie down on the floor, face down, and then he shoots both of them execution style in the back of the head. He first shoots Hampton at point-blank range in the back of the head and he fires again and again, and he shoots Hampton a total of three times. Reed then turned his gun to the back of Sarah Jackson's head, and he shot her in the same manner two times. After shooting this child in the head twice, 
Reed then walked into the main office and removed the surveillance tape. Quite a lot of thinking for some idiot with an IQ of 60, right? After removing the surveillance tape, Reed heard a noise coming from the cooler. When he opened the door, he encountered young Sarah Jackson trying to get up. This girl was a fighter, but in the end, it just didn't help. Reed quickly shot her in the head two more times, for a total of four times. Reed then fled the scene with nearly $7,000 in cash and around $250 in coins. Reed even took the $600 Steve Hampton had in his wallet and likely whatever Sarah Jackson had in her purse as well. Reed likely took the food out of the cooler and stole the fucking light bulbs as well. A passing motorist saw Reed fleeing the scene at 9.30, which meant that he was there robbing this place and killing these two people for literally 45 minutes. Now think about that, 45 minutes. Around just five minutes later, Captain D's employee Michael Butterworth showed up at the front door to start a shift, but the door was locked. Now just imagine that. You missed this entire scene straight from hell by just five minutes. There's no way that he would have gotten out of there alive if he would have got there five minutes sooner. Michael went next door and called the police because he knew something wasn't right. Again, Sarah Jackson was only 16 years old and still an innocent kid working at her first job. And it seems to be a pattern in the murders to come. Reed used the cash from this robbery as a down payment on a little red car just two days later. And he thought that he committed the perfect murders. But the very next day, about 12 miles away from Captain D's, manager Steve Hampton's wallet, driver's license, and video card were all found in the median of Elliott Park in East Nashville. The interesting thing was, there was a big fingerprint on the video card. Now keep that print in mind because it is very, very important. Also, police received news that a big guy wearing a Shoney's apron came into Captain D's the night before to get a job application. And he also said that he would be back the next morning when the murders took place. Obviously, a sketch of this man was made and employees at the nearby Shoney's were all questioned and one Shoney's employee said that the sketch looked like their co-worker, Paul Dennis Reed. Guess what happens next? Absolutely fucking nothing. Reed called in to work sick that day, stating that he was having car problems. So the police never follow up. Two people shot in the head, and they have a description of the perp. Know he's likely a Shoney's employee, and they have a Shoney's employee stating that the sketch looks like a co-worker, and they don't even come back to question the guy. Not exaggerating this. This is factual stuff. Now, Nashville PD does at least run the guy's name for priors and for prints, but this was 1997, and somehow, some way, his Texas rap sheet or fingerprints never came up. So the investigation just halts. Just 11 days later, after Reed commits this double homicide, 
He is fired from his job at Shoney's because of his short, little, itty-bitty temper. He throws a plate at a co-worker, a small, petite, young lady that did nothing to him. Reed is fired on the spot, and as he's getting told by the restaurant manager, Mitch Roberts, he screams loudly, I'm a pre-law student. Now, I do know some pre-law students and some actual law students, and I guess I should ask them if they get away with throwing plates at young ladies. I guess it's a thing. I don't know. I should find out. Reed, however, knows he doesn't really need that job anyway. He just needs to case out another restaurant so he can rob it and kill everyone inside that is working their ass off to make an honest living. You know, like a real, real man? On the evening of March 23rd, 1997, at the McDonald's on Lebanon Road in the Hermitage neighborhood of Nashville, just 3.5 miles northeast of Captain D's, same street, Reed approaches four employees as they exit the restaurant after closing. I'm assuming he thought that he'd throw police off by robbing a place after they closed rather than before it opened because in his mind, that would probably do it. After all, he's a psychiatrist, a lawyer, and a country singing superstar, right? The four McDonald's employees were 27-year-old manager Ronald Santiago, 23-year-old Robert Sewell, 30-year-old Jose Gonzalez, and 17-year-old Andrea Brown. Now Reed approached them at gunpoint and forced them right back into the restaurant. Like last time, Reed made the manager, Ronald Santiago, open the safe, and then he made all four of the employees get into a dry storage closet, and then, like last time, he began to shoot them in the head. At least he tried to. Until his gun, a 25 caliber Remington, misfires when he tried shooting 30-year-old Jose Gonzalez. Gonzalez immediately started punching Reed and fought him with everything that he had. But Reed was just way too big. And to top it off, Reed had already dropped the dead gun and pulled out a hunting knife and began stabbing Gonzalez. He stabbed him literally 17 times. I seen the crime scene photos and they were absolutely horrific. Gonzalez was smart enough to play dead though. Always remember that many people have survived attacks by playing dead. Perpetrators want to flee as fast as they possibly can. And if they assume that you're dead, they will usually leave. Gonzalez was able to crawl his way to the phone and dial 911. Sewell and Santiago were pronounced dead at the scene, but Gonzalez and 17-year-old Andrea Brown were rushed to the hospital, and both were operated on for hours and hours as doctors tried like hell to save their lives, but unfortunately, Gonzalez would be the only survivor out of all four of them. Reed had succeeded in killing another teenage girl with her entire life ahead of her, and this time he barely even made off with $2,300, and most of it in coins. Now Gonzalez was in horrible shape for a long, long time, and he couldn't talk to police. Finally, a sketch was made, but it didn't help much because it looked nothing like the sketch made from the night manager at Captain D's. So again, the investigation stalls and nothing happens. On April 23rd, 
Exactly one month later after Reed killed these four people at a Nashville McDonald's, Reed showed up at the door of a Baskin and Robbins on Wilma Rudolph Boulevard in Clarksville, Tennessee, right next to Nashville. Again, he shows up right after they close and persuades two young female employees to let him inside. Once inside, Reed kidnaps Angela Holmes and Michelle Mace. Angela Holmes was 21 years old and she was the night manager at that Baskin and Robbins and she was a wife and a mother to a little girl. Michelle Mace was just a 16 year old high school student working there part time. Reed made the girls give him what cash was in the store, just $1,200. He then grabbed the surveillance tape as usual, but this time he did something a little different. He forced the two girls to his car by gunpoint. Reed then drove the girls to Dunbar Cave State Park. Once there, he stabbed the girls multiple times and then slit their throats. What Reed did to these young ladies was absolutely brutal. Their spines were basically severed and they were both nearly decapitated. Now I didn't find anything in the police reports or anything that I could read up on that states if these two girls were sexually assaulted too, but he did kidnap them and he did drive them to a secluded area where nobody could hear or see anything. So just do the math. There's no way that he took these young ladies out there to just kill them. And after all of that, we need a song and a shot of something really strong. Here's one shot of tequila by the Nashville band Will Van Winkle and the Sixpins. One more morning waking up all alone It's just one more shot of tequila It's just another tear drop on the floor Hit behind the mask Not sure there's much real me I can assure it Shot of tequila. It's just one more morning waking up all alone. It's just one more shot of tequila. It's just another tear drop on the floor. Wow. 
Serial killer Paul Dennis Reed had now shot a total of five people in the head, stabbed one man 17 times, and also stabbed and cut the throats of two young ladies and nearly severed their spines. One of the girls, 21-year-old Angela Holmes, was found face down in the lake by the shore with her hands bound behind her back, still wearing her Baskin and Robbins apron. The other victim, 16-year-old Michelle Mace, was found without her apron on and her hands were not bound, but she was stabbed and had her throat slashed in the same manner as Angela Holmes. This was likely because Reed killed Angela first, threw her in the water, and kept Michelle alive for reasons that we can only imagine. And still, Reed was remorseless, and only thinking of his own personal need for money. You see, he had no idea that there was a fingerprint on that video card that he left in East Nashville. And he also had no idea that he had left 30-year-old Jose Gonzalez alive after beating and stabbing him 17 times. No, Reed genuinely thought his only problem in life was that he was running out of money. On June 24, 1997, which was exactly two months and one day, after Reed kidnapped and brutally murdered Angela Holmes and Michelle Mace, Reed drove his little red car that he purchased with the blood money from the Captain D's robbery slash double homicide to his ex-boss's house. Yes, he drove over to Shoney's manager Mitch Roberts' house. When Reed knocked on the door, Roberts' son was in the middle of recording a home video in the living room and caught Reed on camera at the door. When his dad opened the door, this clip literally was so creepy that it made my skin crawl. Reed's big ass neck just standing at the door. When he sees the camera, he begins making faces at it as if he's trying to be funny and he was there as a friend. Reed then talks Roberts out to his little red car, promising to show Roberts proof that his other employees were stealing from him while Reed was working there. And Reed also wanted to ask for his job back. Once Roberts walks out to the car, he tells Reed to get the hell off of his property. Reed pulled out his little 25 and a pair of handcuffs, and he told Roberts to put them on and get into his little red car. Like anyone in the world should do, Roberts just bolted towards his house, yelling for his wife to get the gun. Reed chased Roberts up to his front door and then ran off, speeding away in his car. To be clear, none of you, and I mean none of you, should ever get into a car with anyone that tries to kidnap you at knife or gunpoint. Once you're inside the vehicle, you will likely be killed. 
almost always. You're better off getting shot if that occurs, but if you refuse and make noise and bolt, most of the time the would-be kidnapper will bolt as well. 90% of anyone that's going to commit a kidnapping has been to prison and they know that kidnapping usually leads to a longer sentence than murder. So if they plan on kidnapping you, they likely plan on killing you. Why is kidnapping a longer sentence than murder? For the same reason that possession of a kilo of cocaine is a longer sentence than murder. Because politicians truly do not give a fuck about you. They care about politics and payoffs. Lesson of the day. So Roberts runs into his house. Reed speeds off in his little red car. And of course, Roberts calls 911. When the police get there, and you're going to absolutely love this. When the police get there to Robert's house, Robert's phone begins to ring. It's his good old pal, Reed, who literally showed up at his front door just a couple minutes before that to try to kidnap him. Why does Reed call? Hmm. Well, he just wanted to apologize and say that he was sorry and he hopes that there's no hard feelings. Can you imagine that conversation? Hey bro, about that gun I put to your head and about those handcuffs, really sorry about that, my bad. You know, I was just having a rough day. Please forgive me. You can't make this shit up, I'm telling you. The police coach Roberts into talking Reed back over and the police surround the little red car, pull Reed out, beat the shit out of him, cuff him, and haul him off to the county jail. Once he's booked and they get his fingerprints, the cops set down their donuts, then they set down their coffee, they all joined hands and sang Hotel California because that motherfucker can check out anytime he likes, but he can't ever leave. Because you remember that little video card that was found on the median in Nashville that belonged to the murdered McDonald's manager Steve Hampton? The one with the fingerprint I told you not to forget about? Well, of course, that print was forensically proven to be that of one Paul Dennis Reed. And this time, a low IQ score was not going to save his big dumbass. There was also eyewitness testimony from Jose Gonzalez who survived the 17 stab wounds from Reed. And also, there was DNA evidence from the two Baskin and Robbins employees, Angela Holmes and Michelle Mace, that Reed kidnapped tortured, and killed. And let's not forget the videotape of Reed showing up at his ex-boss Mitch Roberts' house trying to kidnap him at gunpoint. Quite a lot of evidence, no matter how dumb you are. During his murder trials, Reed's attorneys tried like hell to use his brain scans as an excuse and an insanity plea. And there were some abnormalities present in these scans for sure. But the premeditation and brutality in which these crimes were carried out, plus the fact that they happened over a long time span, just kind of overwhelmed anything Reed's defense could throw at the judge or jury. Reed was simply a dead man walking at this point. He received seven death sentences, one for each murder that he committed. To this day, that is the most death sentences handed down to a single person in the history of Tennessee. And it has sparked a lot of controversy in the world of anti-death penalty protests. How do you feel about it? You think that a guy who tried to burn his grandma alive 
feed her thumbtacks, beat her dog to death with a bat, raped his mother and biological sisters, or at least tried to, shoot five people in the head, stab two people to death, and another person 17 times, and then tries to kidnap his boss at gunpoint in front of his own house, all with a prior rap sheet a mile long, deserves to live and breathe off taxpayer money until he dies of natural causes? How do you feel about that? Would you stand outside of a prison and protest this man's death? Reed finally decided he himself deserved to die, and he waived his rights to all of his possible future appeals. Now, upon doing this, many people protested his decision, including his sister Linda, because I guess she decided that everything that he did to her, including sexually assault her, wasn't actually that bad. I'm not saying that we should never forgive, but I am saying that sometimes it's okay to not forgive. That doesn't mean that I don't feel sorry for Reed. It just means that I don't want anyone that I care about to be stuck on the same planet as Reed. So Reed was ready to die. His death sentence was scheduled for January 2008. The families of the victims all showed up to witness his execution, but at the very last minute, Reed chickened out and he decided that he just couldn't let himself die from lethal injection for the brutal murders that he inflicted on so many. But finally, on November 1st, 2013, Paul Dennis Reed dies at the age of 55, literally having the luxury of living over twice as long as any of his murder victims. He dies from heart failure and respiratory issues and pneumonia, which I assume is better than the way that any of his victims ever got to die. Either way, Reed's heart finally stopped and his soul left his body and plummeted downward, spiraling through the ground straight to hell where he was spawned from. The devil greeted him home with open and loving arms before throwing him in a big pit of boiling tar and pissing on his face as he began to drown in it. This is just speculation, not facts, but you're welcome for the visual. Reed moved to Nashville to become famous. He couldn't sing, he couldn't write, he couldn't play guitar, but he did get his wish. He became famous. He became one of Nashville's most popular serial killers of all time and has had more people learn and know his name than probably 99.9% .9 of every country singer out there. And there is a lot of us. He was born to kill a true living, breathing narcissist, psychopath, complete with the homicides, motives, plastic surgery, and brain scans to prove it. This guy would have killed anyone or anything and would have been able to go home and jerk off, watch TV, and never think about them again for the rest of his life. He simply had no empathy, remorse, or likely even a soul. His eyes were dead and could have been the subject of a Slayer song. Maybe his brain injuries and his father not being around had something to do with it, but in my opinion, he was just born this way. If Paul Dennis Reed wasn't born a living, breathing demon from hell, 
then demons simply do not exist. And that's going to do it for episode 5 of Music and Murder. I'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. I apologize about there not being an after-episode discussion this time, but I've been out of town a lot this last couple of weeks, and I just couldn't work out a time to make it happen. But I'm going to leave you with a song of mine. A song that reminds me of this case, being that all of these people died and got hurt over money. It is a song called Ain't Got Money, and it's a song about not really needing money to be happy. It is a hybrid from an old Kenny Loggins tune called Danny's Song. Till next time, always remember, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean that they're not really out to get you. Because they are. Believe me, they are out to get you. Leaving tonight on my way to San Antonio. Be a while before I'm home. It kills me that you're all alone. But loving the music, man, it would have used to be. It's Cadillac's history. But you're still right here with me. dreams come true But if they don't well that ain't even a thing It ain't nothing but a chicken wing Just listen to the song I sing Going by, but we're both still right here. Sometimes it makes me shed a tear. Sometimes it makes me drink a beer. And no matter what, girly, we're gonna be okay. Cause even when we're old and gray, I'm gonna look at you and say,
right, baby Gonna be all right now Oh, 